Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. Let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hands and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. It's been a few months. I think we'll start off with, uh, we got, was it, uh, someone who listened to the podcast got in touch with you and noticed a typo? Yeah. Two people in the last few days after all this time, (laughs) no one, no one bringing it up. Suddenly we find we have a typo in our logo. Uh, Whose fault would that be, John, by the way? That would be, that would be mine. And also (laughs) there's no, uh, not that we're assigning blame or anything like that, but. Oh, it's 100% my fault, perhaps even more. Um, but <laughs> I think Photoshop doesn't have a... When you put text into the photo editor in Photoshop, it doesn't um, give you corrections. It doesn't give you the, the squiggly bacon under the under the, the word right. when, it, when you spell it wrong. So I didn't notice it. I pressed an additional T, and I think it said conversation. Conversation, right. Well, I suppose um, it's Photoshop. We've actually been... We've actually been talking about conversation the whole time, so we uh, we made that correction. Um, <laughs> I, I've got the new logo ready to go. It'll go up with these these episodes coming out here. I'm not sure if it'll apply to all of the old ones. Maybe it will be a beautiful Easter egg for people that make it to episode 15 or whatever this one's going sure. to be. I like that. Um, I but, like that. It's funny yeah, from here I on heard, forward, it should be. When I heard this, every instinct was for me to say, Oh, you never heard that word conversation? Hmm. <laughs> and then and then start making things up. <laughs> what yeah. conversation is in the literature? We uh, just yeah. hopefully shame our a whole new field of communication fans. just unraveled before us. <laughs> so, uh, additionally, we had a little bit of a hiccup with the podcast software that we're using to publish these. We've actually been sitting on three episodes for a couple of months now. Uh, right now it's uh, summertime in 2022. Uh, we have a couple episodes that have been ready to get published, but they've been in the software and they haven't. They didn't actually get out. I saved them. I must have clicked something incorrectly. And so we've had these podcasts ready to go for some time, and they just never got out. I don't know. A couple people have been asking about when episodes are going to come out next or what we've got in the works. So. This one will be the first one that comes out after the, I think, episode 14. We had talked about uh, listening. I think we had two episodes on listening. And we will release this one next. This one kind of explains the situation. We've got three other episodes that will also be rolled out in the in the coming weeks. If you're listening sequentially, you'll notice that we're talking about uh, the time that we record them. I think we were ta- recording just before Christmas last year, so we probably say a few things that are mentioning when we are recording it at the beginning just as part of the intro. So if you're listening sequentially, that's why this is the way that it is. Um, if you're just happening to 
listen to a, sing- a single episode out of order, then it probably just makes sense that you're listening to something that was recorded beforehand and we're just talking about the time that we recorded it. Uh, so this episode, we're actually talking about meta communication conversations. I don't know. How do we want to title it? Well, it's uh, it, what I said is very meta because we're going to have a conversation about conversation. That's all I meant, right? <laughs> Got it. And we talked before we came on. So, but it is meta communication. It is talk about talk. And so, yeah. Um, so that's our issue. Yep. So that that kind of gives you where we are right now. Uh, not much has changed for me personally. I'm still in Colorado. You'll hear more about that transition uh, in the next episodes. Feels weird to talk about it that way, but um, yeah. And then you are gearing up for school coming up? Yeah, we got about four weeks, a little, little less. Um, I'm getting over COVID, so I apologize for some mm. coughing that might happen. Doing, doing fine. Just kind of feels like a cold. But uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, school is coming, like it or not, ready or not, as always happens. It's good, awesome. though. It's a ghost town around here right now, as you might remember. It's, it's really good when the kids come back. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I mean, it is great to record again. It is. Uh, I do miss doing these. Hopefully, we can. I know we always talk about it, but I do. I do cherish these. They're a nice thing that kind of grounds me, brings some consistency when we when we are able to. So hopefully, we can get a, a few more in before the the busyness of fall is upon us. Um, but that being said, I think let's uh, let's just dive right into the little devotional. I think you have. Was it Colossians? Yeah, nothing maybe profound, except all scriptures are profound in their way, but um, kind of an obvious text, I guess, is what I'm suggesting. This is Colossians 4. Um, The Apostle Paul has just talked about his own speaking. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we can proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains, and then he addresses his readers. Um, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, and then to us... Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. And then this little little gem. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And I've, I've thought about that in terms of a phrase I've fallen into of being transparently Christian is what I want to be. Just transparently Christian, meaning... Willing to more or less all the time signal kind of who I am just by the words I choose. Like, boy, God has given us a great day today, you know. And um, just putting putting out those little hints of who we are and what we're interested in most above all things. And so I, I've often challenged audiences not in, in recently, of what would happen if we did more of this, you know. Uh, a lay person told me he makes himself ask a new person he meets every time. Within a few minutes, he'll say, hey, can, can I just ask you this? Do you believe in God? And, you know, who knows what they're going to say? Uh, why do you ask? Well, because he's good to me or because nothing's more interesting than this to me. And I'm sure you've thought about it. And, but it's, it's the issue of what would happen. I mean, it could get messy pretty quickly. It could get very wonderful pretty quickly. But I think there's a thousand ways to do that, to just broadcast those little signals of who we are. And this is just exactly what I think Paul is suggesting. Let your conversation be full of grace, seethe with salt, and then the prayers you know how to answer people, because that's going to, as Paul was saying, that's going to open doors, the very things he asked for. Doors will open. And so um, I think what this episode might be is um, 
maybe more than usual, I'm not sure, but kind of plundering the Egyptians, which is to say just looking at what scholars have looked at and thought about in terms of conversation and looking for the value there as good people have and smart people have exercised their reason on this question, what makes a conversation effective? What can we draw from that? And I'm going to, I have one example, jump in though anytime, John, one example, something really simple, but it comes right out of something called Grice's Maxims, which is to say, what are the rules about conversation? It's, it's like a, like a rule-based approach, like playing chess. You can't play chess if you don't know the rules. It's kind of that approach. So um, I'm thinking of back in the day, earlier in my ministry, going to seminars, and the seminar is about, well, how do you, how do you have spiritual conversations, right? How do you, how do you turn the conversation toward uh, the things that matter the most? And as I think back on it, it was a little bit too clever, you know, like you say to someone, hey, did you see the game last night? Packer game, right? Or, yeah, I saw the game. And mm-hmm, pretty yeah. painful to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, painful. Well, guess what? Life is painful. <laughs> and life isn't <laughs> a game. And now we're going to talk about Jesus, right? So yeah. I'm going to pause and get your reaction to that, Sean. What is, well, what I really like the instinct on this. The, what was the, um, the little story you said just to go up to someone and say, do you believe in God? What do you believe? What is your... Like, I've never thought about that in terms of being transparently Christian, as you say, because I, I don't think I've ever asked, I've, I've asked people that, but not out of the blue, right? But it does seem like a very, it, it's incisive in that it kind of changes the topic very quickly, right? Um, but it's, it's very, but it's honest, it's open, it's not aggressive, it's purely inquiry, and it's a door. Because I'm really um, interested, so it's I'm a, really curious. Yeah, and and it's kind of where I'm learn going something with new. This. It's the it, it is the issue of topics. So the relevance, relevancy maxim looks at how do conversationalists manage topics, and it, it's pretty straightforward. But you know, it really is that any conversation comes to these moments of soul, you know, and and at that moment of kind of exhausted whatever you have been talking about, the the simple thing is you can say whatever you want in those moments. Hey, you see the movie last night? Whatever. I mean, it can be really anything, literally anything. And mm-hmm. rather than trying to be clever, you know, I, I'm just, I can prepare in advance for what will I do at those first moments that the conversation is really lacking something. And it's just, that's just kind of how it works. If, if I say, so life isn't a game, I mean, the, the issue is that that's breaking a rule. It's breaking the relevancy maxim because we weren't talking about Jesus. We were talking about football and Mm-hmm. I, my, my reaction is kind of that I don't want to talk to you again <laughs> you're going to be pulling that stuff on me and you don't even have the mm-hmm. competence to know how these things work I, I think it's just kind of a mistake and people will say well Jesus could do that he can talk about water and that becomes a conversation about living water in John 4 And um, <laughs> sometimes I joke why can Jesus do that well he's Jesus <laughs> and there's a some advantages to that, you know, having all the wisdom of God himself. So we're not saying there can't ever be a way in which you kind of sort of cleverly turn the conversation, but I think it's much better to say it's not about being clever. It's really, I'm talking to my friend and I say, you know what, first pause, I say, by the way, you said something to me last time I've been thinking about ever since. You said this to me. And so it's a kind of turn I can prepare in advance. My kid said mm-hmm. the coolest thing at, at supper last night. We were having a devotion, you know, and she said the coolest thing about this or that. 
And uh, my pastor made a comment. I, I've just been trying to unpack ever since he made it on Sunday. And so these are the the prompts, kind of the yeah. The, that am I making sense? You know, conversation. Yeah, that makes re- sense. It seems like a, you tap into a type of conversational skill, where topic aside, you could bring up. I mean, any topic that there are multiple topics where people might feel a hesitancy, like, oh, why are you bringing this up that are outside of Christian, maybe politics, maybe something else that's in the news, maybe something else that has happened, or maybe something personal to the person that you're talking to that has is kind of like an elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, but to the, um, just a, a beautiful, simple way of, of bringing that to the surface and getting it on the table and getting it uh, as part of the conversation. Uh, I think there's a, a skill there that can be practiced. And then of course, when you're talking about, you know, theological topics or talking about God or speaking to someone in that way, it's the, it's the same thing. It's a, it's just an honest, open way to get into that kind of conversation and to learn really. I think with, without stealing any of our later thunder, but just being general, genuinely curious about the other person and where they're, what they think about it. Exactly. I just heard John Lennox without, say this. Uh, so scientist, mathematician, I think PhD from Cambridge or someplace like that. Um, but he was commenting on Peter saying, be prepared to give an answer to those that ask you for the reason, for the hope you have. And he was making the simple observation that Peter's assuming that people are asking us questions. And it becomes a really useful question to me practically is how do I get people to ask me questions? And I think one way is the thing you just quote, um, becoming truly interested. It's, it's the kind of questions I'm asking of you. I ask you what life is about. You know, how, how do you get through the day? I'm asking you honest questions. And there's a conversational thing that at some point you will feel almost a certain pressure to reciprocate. And so well, what about you? What, what, what makes life worth it yeah. for you? And I always think if someone's asking me a question of that kind of meaning and depth, that's, boy, that's, that's the home run. Because to me, like apologetics suddenly gets so much easier when you're asking me something. And how do I make that happen? Well, by the kind of interest I show on you, I think is one very, very good way. So I have a story for this. I'll try not to draw it out too much, but it's, I was flying to Virginia Beach or back. I was flying to Virginia Beach for my PhD work. And uh, the guy next to me was just a really nice guy and asked me who I was. And, and I answered, and, well, who are you? And it was Mark Oppenheimer, who was the religion editor, editor of the New York Times, which is someone I'd read. And uh, we just had the most amazing... Oh, time. that Oppenheimer. Yeah, that Oppenheimer. I'm dropping a name here. Um, so cultural Jewish guy with a PhD in Christian studies and clearly brilliant, but also very, very friendly. And we talked about a ton of stuff. And while we're talking, I'm thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to kick myself if I don't somehow make this a even better conversation. Right. Well, he had a beautiful little girl with him, maybe three years old, and she was on the other side from me and she spilled her Cheerios or whatever. And so we has to turn to her and, you know, deal with all of that. It took a few minutes. So as he's turned away from me, uh, this is the very thought I had, a relevancy maxim from Grice is, when he turns back to me, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> you know, I can literally say whatever I want, introduce any topic, and I just, so I'm, my mind is racing, but I finally 
he turned back and and I said, you know, I just got to ask you this. I, you're you're a Jewish man that has known tons of Christian people. I bet people are always trying to convert you. How do you feel about that? Does that bother you? Does it make you angry? And, and that just became the the spark for a whole new conversation. Well, well, yeah, they convert me all the time or try to. Well, what what gets in the way, you know? And and uh, we had a wonderful conversation about prophecy. Brilliant guy knows not knows nothing about prophecy, not a single thing. He said it was a Rorschach test, but you can see whatever you want there. But he didn't know any of the specifics. It was just so interesting. I'm not sure where I got with him, but I'm just saying, as a simple insight from conversation research, a very simple one. Um, I learned a ton. Like you said, you learn stuff. I I learned that he had the Jewish problem, and the Jewish problem is if Jesus was the Messiah, the world should be better. Especially should be better for my people, and so mm-hmm. got a chance to talk a little bit about what what it means to say Jesus changed the world, you know, changed its status um, by his willing death on the cross and resurrection, and the change you're dreaming of, new heaven and earth. That's just one we wait for, you know. But so I'm not saying it was I was anything brilliant or smart, but I'm just saying it was just useful yeah, to the- have that thought about how topics work. That was really super yeah. The, useful. the the thought that I can say. There's a moment in this conversation right now, a door is opened where I can say anything that I want. And it almost is the, it's like a junction in a road when you're coming to a conversation where you realize that you can go any number of different directions without going too far off of the path or making it too uncomfortable or forced. And just little conversational skills like that, that you can you can pick up on and learn how to incorporate into your conversations about really anything. Well, for me, it's the fact that you can prepare something that feels comfortable and has that sweet spot of not being too intrusive, but, but showing genuine interest. Uh, you and I know someone from Mankato named Kristen. And remember one time I saw her really struggling in class and I know she felt really bad about something she'd said. This came across wrong and harsh and, and so on. And, the next time I saw her for independent independent study, we'd meet all the time. I can prepare for that, and I then I saw what happened the other day. I know that's kind of rough. I hope you can. I think I said something like, "I hope you can take it to the cross," and you know. And she, I remember, she said, "Take it to the cross." Is this a Christian thing? <laughs> it's another example. Ooh, she's asking me a good question here. Yeah, it's a Christian thing. <laughs> but that was all prepared in advance. The other example I have is when she told me that she'd been, at one of our last meetings, probably second last, told me that she'd been terrified of dying her whole entire life, which is a big thing to confess if you're, you know, a Marxist philosopher, terrified of it. And I answered, I think, okay, you know, I gave a Christian witness just what I what I think and do about the fear of dying. But, but then it was the next time we met, I had this all prepared. And next time we're wanting a topic, I'm going to say, you know what, you said something big to me last time. And I'm not entirely happy with how I answered because you really honored me by this big thing you said about being afraid of dying. And I was able to I see, able yeah. to come back, and now I've got a, I've got something more full and rich and kind of designed for her. You know, it was so a story. It's, it's like of, you have the story of Mary. Yeah, you have the you have when you get to a junction, you have a pathway prepared that you can take an avenue that you can go. That's more or less not scripted, but it it flows through the the transition of topics more eloquently. Yeah, I think it I think it's 
somewhere in what Paul is talking about. Um, just conversation seasoned with salt, designed to open a door, and then he just prays, "Give me the courage to open to walk through that door." And it's sort of like mm-hmm. changing changing the issue from cleverness to courage. It maybe does take a little bit of courage. There's a little bit of risk involved, um, but I think that's an important change in how we think about those things. Not not clever, not clever. Um, a little bit of guts, maybe. Because <laughs> you can't, because yeah. you can't script where it's going to go next. You, you're just scripting the opening, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a small example it's, it's of pondering a, the Egyptians. Yeah, it's like a prepared, <laughs> a prepared question that that uh, could lead in any certain direction. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's funny. I, I just said this to a conference um, this spring in Texas. The transparently Christian piece. And we're checking out. I got to check out before the last day session. So we're checking out, and the lady at the counter says, "So how's your conference? How was your conference?" And I said, "Oh, it's awesome." <laughs> and then I, and then I said, "Oh, I can't say that. I'm the presenter. How can I say? How can I say it was awesome? <laughs> when did I get so arrogant?" I know then, for a fact that it's awesome. <laughs> but then, but then I said, oh, you know, Christian people—they can really be kind. Not, not always, I know, but they can really be kind. And people have been kind to me. And, and I said, the worship too is just been just to die for it so that was trying to my example of trying to be the very thing i said the day before you know i'm going to approach mm-hmm. i'm going to try to be transparently christian and she didn't yeah. get it we're just at the counter she said something about um yeah i love positivity too or whatever that's not really what i was saying about worship <laughs> <laughs> oh one time john I, this is what i did i had i got in a mood and i wish i was always this bold but I'm um, going to get my hair cut, which is a situation designed by God for, for witnessing, just in all <laughs> kinds of ways. <laughs> so it goes all the way back to Samson. It's why we have hair, yes. It's just the perfect scenario, right? Because they got to be nice to you. And, uh, <laughs> but I had a title. Uh, this was not totally premeditated. I had, I had a book with me with a title with something overtly Christian. And so what I did is I sat down and she starts to do her work and I, do you mind if I read? No, I'll go ahead and read. So I, I read for about five minutes and then I, I closed the book and just said, wow. <laughs> and, she's, <laughs> and she's like, what? Oh man, I, I, something I prepare a little bit just of, you think you know how much Jesus loves the world and then, and then you read something like this. And so she was a sweet little thing with, Blue hair, colored blue hair and stuff. And and she says, oh, I love Jesus too. <laughs> so did, did, she ended up, ended up being this conservative girl and Christian to the core. Had a wonderful conversation about stuff. But uh, I, I saw, yeah. not claiming to be more you never know. bold than I am, but you I never, think you can just yeah. be smart about these things. And it's not, not that difficult. So anyway, that's our first thoughts on conversation. Where should we go from here? Yeah, I think, well, one of the the theories, the intellectual, you know, ivory tower sort of um, things that we can bring to this was, uh, that we talked about was speech act theory. And this is the idea of words always have an intention behind them. So when you say something, you are... Well, you're doing multiple things. You're actually uttering the words. You are implying any number of different things or asserting something. 
and then you are trying to accomplish something by having said it. And it just breaks down into those those categories that allow you to dissect what someone says and sort of dig in deeper and figure out what's really going on. So I'm um, like a, a simple example would be the cake is good, right? I uttered this sentence and that would be what we call the locutionary. Is that how you pronounce it? Locutionary? I always feel weird when I say it. So. Well, it's, uh, I don't know if the adjective or noun is most favorite. I think it's locution. So it, mm. it is an action that is, um, takes place in time and space and so on. And then, but the next word is, a, is an interesting one. I think I know where you're going with this parallelocution. So not to, not to interrupt you, John, where were you heading with that parallelocution? Yeah. So yeah, locu- a locutionary act would be, yeah. would be just uttering the words, um, all of the, you know, the sounds leave your mouth and they enter the world and someone at the other end hears it or doesn't hear it. The illocutionary act, uh, the result of the implied request or meaning presented by you uttering those words. So, for example, if you were to ask, is there any salt? The request would be, please give the salt to me. That's kind of implied when you ask where it is. Or if you say, can you please stop at the store on your way home from work and pick up X, Y, or Z for the kitchen, we're out of sugar or something. Um, that it, you could say, sorry, I, I got mixed up for a second. If you said, do we have any sugar? You could be asking for someone to go to the store and pick up some sugar on your way home from work. If you were on the phone call or something, right? You, you imply these things. That's what the illocutionary act is. Um, the perlocutionary act or perlocutionary act, that is the result of the utterance. The, that's what happens afterwards. So do you actually go to the store? Do you actually pick up some sugar? Um, it's just a way of categorizing the different, uh, the words, the intentions, and the actions that are around the speech itself. And so that's really the 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 simple kind of view of speech act theory. And I, th- I think that's most of what needs to be taken away. You can get much deeper into examining the rules behind how we uh, are interpreting different illocutionary acts, whether we are reinterpreting this as sarcasm, are there contextual rules around this? You can dig into uh, the different kinds of illocutionary acts. You have assertives where you're really just saying, you know, something true about the world. You say, you know, I observe this to be true. This cake is good. You're just, all you're saying is that you have seen that this cake is good. It tastes good. X, Y, or Z. Uh, you could have directions, which are trying to get someone to do something. You could say, could you go to the store? You, that's asking someone to, to actually do something. Um, commissives are a third type where you could, I guess they you can break it down into commissives being a future act. So like vowing, pledging, promising, guaranteeing something. Um, expressives are speaking about your psychological state and declarations would be something that isn't really true until you say the words. 
for example, marriage is the an example of this, where it's, you're not really married until someone says that like, they are man and wife. So you can you can break it down into all of these different uh, categories, but I think the real gist of it is just looking at a, a speech act and then breaking it down into those three categories of the the utterance itself, what you are intending to happen, and then what actually happens. There's a whole. I don't think there's a fully formalized version of speech act theory. I think uh, Cyril, John R. Cyril, John L. Austin, a couple of the the scholars on this topic. There's the general thing that we had just covered here. I don't think that they've codified any of the specifics underneath it. There's still some ongoing discussion about it, but that's the beauty of uh, of theory is that it, it is kind of an ongoing conversation. It's slowly being being delved into. I think Cyril is still alive, I believe. he. This was what he was known for in the 60s and 70s, I believe, is when he became got some notoriety there. If you wanted to look that up, he's, uh, he's an interesting one. Uh, but yeah, speech act theory. It's a good lens to view c- communication and conversation through when you can take a sentence, usually in retrospect, almost always in retrospect, and and think about what uh, what was actually said, what was implied, and what actually happened as a result of that. And then you can, through that analysis, maybe prepare something, prepare something new, as we were just talking about. So, in the example of what's uh, well, any one of the stories that you said, like you had the sort of prepared response ready to go where like I can say anything when he turns back to me and to have something ready that you can say as just like a segue in the conversation. You are saying one thing, you're implying your illocutionary act is that I'd like to talk about this now. And then whether or not you actually talk about it or where it goes from there, that would be the perlocutionary actions that follow. So just breaking it down into that is an interesting way to maybe dissect some things that weren't apparent on the surface when you're doing it. Yeah, I I think it gets at the real complexity of this area. I think one of the most complex things I've ever studied is discourse analysis. Um, the scholarship goes back to, it is the 60s, because I remember it, it goes back to uh, the Watergate scandal, which was the first time anyone had ever seen piles and piles and piles of actual conversation transcripts. And it was just bewildering to people. How does this, how does this even work? How do they know what they're talking about half the time? And so this whole area of investigation kind of grew up around that. And so you're right. It, it, the, the theory says words are actions. So utterances are intended to do things. And the idea is that what they're intended to do can be very different from what the words themselves are if you were to you know exegize them or whatever. Um, I hadn't thought about this or prepared to talk about it, but... There isn't the old Hebrew idea where the word for for word and the word for deed are the same word, which kind of goes right back to creation. Mm. God setting all things in motion, doing all things um, that we can see uh, based on a spoken word. So there's something in the background of of the fact that it's it's similar for people too that our words do things, and to to take mm-hmm. them as actions, I think, is the big step forward here. Um, there are people that are trying to solve some of the tough discourses in scripture by looking at this other set of questions that speech act theory suggests. 
Um, Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king? And Jesus replies, you are saying I'm a king. And that's pretty puzzling. What is he trying to say by answering that way? And so there's kind of an interesting convergence of theology and communication right now, right at that level of some of the most difficult to interpret exchanges in the Bible. Um, my example, a story I've told often, uh, sort of hypothetical, but so let's say a daughter of mine is young, and let's say she's talking back to her mom. I won't name which daughter I'm picturing in my head right now. But she walks down the hallway and slams the door, and, <clears throat> and uh, my bride is really hurt by that. And so she says to me, do you think she's even going to apologize to me? She says this brokenheartedly. And I could say to her, well, she will, but it will be with an illocutionary speech act. That's probably not helpful. What I say to her is, she will. She'll, she's going to come back, and she's going to sit down, and she's going to say something like, Mom, supper was really good tonight. And when she says, Mom, supper was really good, what she's really saying to you is, I'm sorry. It's not the home run of apologies. Um, but that's kind of speech act theory gets into that, too. It says, what counts as an apology? That's kind of the language here. What counts as an apology? So what are all the conditions to be met before you, who I'm communicating with, will, conclu will conclude that I just apologized to you? And mm -hmm. So again, it goes to the words are very different from what she's doing with them. This, the mm -hmm. utterance as an action is very different. And if we're going to insist on being literal all the time, that just is not true to how people actually communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, hearing two students, last thing, I'll jump, I'll jump out. Two students guy and a girl are bickering and as a communication guy I want to jump in and say to them to the fella all she's trying to say to you is why don't you like me anymore that's all she's trying to say to you why don't you like me well she doesn't say it in those words but if he weren't so thick in that moment he'd realize what she's trying to do is find out if he appreciates her she's trying to do is some kind of mm -hmm. I don't know some kind of post-mortem on a on a dying yeah. relationship potentially. But and I think one of yeah, the, go ahead. for sure. I think the, there's a lot of indirect communication layered and weaved into the conversation that we have normally, especially when you consider the context that these things are happening in. So I think the official terminology or constitutive rules that tell you how to interpret different situations, what constitutes a promise, what constitutes an apology, what constitutes any number of these illocutionary acts that have been implied in the speech that's there. And how do you, how do you understand that that's true? And then, you know, maybe we've talked about conflict and we're going to talk about conflict, I believe in the next episode actually. Um, but maybe one thing that you can take into that is Conflict arises when there is a different interpretation of these illocutionary acts. One, one person is trying to say, you know, they might be saying one thing and really they mean, I love you. And the other person might think that it means go pick up sugar from the store. You know, they, there are all of these different layers into the speech that we have. And what does, uh, what are people really meaning? Um, so it goes, yeah, it goes it's fascinating to, to break down all of those. Yeah. It goes to the whole d debate and communication of, is all communication purposeful? And this speech act theory lines up on the side of saying, yes, it is. You're not going to get to it by just, again, exegeting the words. But there's a reason for the utterance. There is something you're trying to do, typically. 
and it can be what I'm trying to do is convey information. So that's still on the table that we're just transmitting mm -hmm. information, but it can be so much broader than that, and it, and uh, can really test our, our grace, our wisdom, our humility to receive those messages and not pretend we're not hearing mm -hmm. them, right? So anytime I, you're not saying something in the most obvious way, that really is indirect. So that's a indirect. So that's a good catch that indirectness is built into this for sure. Yeah, and I think going to interpreting scripture, scripture, there are a lot of difficult conversations or puzzling things that Jesus will say, like, you're saying that I'm a king. There's a lot to unpack there. And I, I think I also, on the other hand, sometimes I get, I don't, I don't want to use this as sort of a hammer that makes everything a nail and start interpreting scripture in only this lens and, and start to dig into things and try to imply or assert things that might not be true just because I can dissect uh, an utterance in this type of way. So sometimes it is just a pure, this is disseminating information, and that's all that we're trying to accomplish. There's nothing hidden. We don't need to be too clever, as we were talking about earlier, with how we apply this. And sometimes I think I, I err on the side of being too clever, um, and so sometimes it's nice for me to step back and say, well, maybe this was just a blessing or maybe this was just, uh, this is really just the face value there. I don't need to try to unpack something more, or make it more meaningful. It's, it's meaningful just the way that it is. Well, right. I think from the example of Jesus before Pilate, it's an example of, I'm just puzzled by this. And so, um, it can just provide another tool. As I said, another kind of question to ask. Okay, if I don't know what he's saying, what's he doing? Just can be what breaks through in some small and way. Maybe, yeah. And maybe that's enough is just asking the question without necessarily needing to find out for certain this is the answer to what you know Jesus was intending by these words. So just asking, you know, what did what did Jesus mean when he said that? And just seeing where that leads is oftentimes the the tool being used to its greatest effect where you don't need to answer the question, but the things that you discover as you go down that road, that sounds very cliche, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's useful. It's being a useful tool at that time. I'm always up and, for a good cliche. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beyond even utterances like the woman caught in adultery and Jesus stoops down to draw something in the sand. We don't even know what it was, but to try to get at what's going on there, I mean, it just opens up the context. This situation is fraught uh, with some real risk and danger. And and um, what this uh, woman is facing as far as what could happen to her as men are holding stones and stuff. And so we don't know what he said, what he wrote in the sand. But we can ask the question, what's he trying to do? And that can, again, just maybe take our thoughts forward. He's diffusing the crowd. He's doing something profound to, I think deal with the, the highly charged emotion of the situation. That's not a clear, full answer, but it's just, again, a different question to ask about it. And we can just be stuck by saying, I wonder what exactly. he wrote in the sand. Well, we don't know what he wrote in the sand, but there's still a reason that the writer tells us that John wants us to know how he met that moment. So maybe not the best example because I don't have it all resolved in my head, but uh, yeah, there's... Well, there's but I think, it's, I think it's great regardless because... Just realizing that we don't maybe have all of the answers to what the intention was, but we know it was important enough to do it. It was important enough to record it in scripture and include it into the into what was written in the gospel. 
And I mean, if I put myself in the shoes of someone who was there, maybe I'm even holding a stone at that time. And I see the person who I've challenged to come up with the the judgment of this situation, just stoop down and start writing something in the sand at this very heated time. What does that do to the air, like to this space? It's How would a, you film it, that? Is like the question I like to ask and come back to. How would you film that moment? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, and then he and yeah. then he asks a powerful question, and it's more indirectness there too. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, wonderful. Was there another area of kind of the scholarship side to segue into? Uh, we do have here in our notes the social intelligence by Daniel Goleman, and that was uh, sort of getting into the neurology of what happens during a conversation. What I've gleaned from it was. Oftentimes, we talk about getting in sync. You're in a conversation, maybe uh, things start to flow, people are going back and forth. There's there's a getting in sync that happens. Um, from what I remember in Goldman's book, he was able to find, he found a way to, I think it was fMRI, there's a way to track kind of what ha- is happening in the brain neurologically when you're having this type of conversation. And he was able to see changes and observe the actual changes that are there. So there's a, an actual physical response to getting in sync in conversation that isn't to go unnoted. That's the primary thing that I remember about Goldman. I don't know if you had anything else yeah, on I top of that. Yeah, I cracked the book for a while, but you can correct me. I think maybe you have. So yeah, he's looking at, I, I, tell me if I'm right. Talks about two bridges between conversationalist one is sort of cognitive so uh, so we're thinking I think he calls it the high road and the low right. road right and so in the high road we're thinking processing it's a, a somewhat slower connection between two people then becomes possible which is this lower bridge where now the same regions of the brain are firing up almost simultaneously it's really really too fast to understand and and maybe Mirror neurons and micro expressions are mirroring each other. Maybe our breathing falls into sync, and maybe the turns are just really rapid fire. We're just really super responsive. Um, and what I remember about the book was one of the biggest takeaways for me was that's powerful and that's nurturing and edifying and enjoyable to have that kind of connection. What are the two things that need to be present for it to occur? And what I remember is attention. So you have to have my full attention for this to happen. And the other that I remember, interestingly, was the liking. I have to like you for this to ever occur between us. So that's one of the gut checks of how much do I like people or how freely do I give that quality. And so it's sort of part of our pushback on technology is this just is what doesn't happen asynchronously. Nothing like it's going to happen if we're exchanging text messages and emails. But... um, yeah, if I pay attention and if I like you, then if those two conditions are met, then we can enjoy something that I call the, one of the hallelujahs of communication. One of the times you just step back and say, wow, what we're, what we're made to enjoy and what we're made to experience is, like I say, it's like bumblebees can't fly and marathon runners shouldn't be able to run marathons as fast as they do. Some of this just shouldn't be possible. And yet there it is, right on the MRI machine. 
Uh, so that's what I take away from it. I think it's it's super practical when it just asks, makes me ask myself, what kind of attention do I pay? And how generous is my point of view toward people that I can actually say in my heart of hearts, I like this person. So that's my takeaway. Yeah. Does it ring a bell or am I getting anything? Yeah, I remember he he laid out a conversation. Uh, I mean, he told a story. It was just, you know, the boy and the girl across from each other at the coffee table and they find that they're in the flow, in sync. I think sometimes you see similar results in, in sports or other areas of high performance where you're, you're really in the zone. I th- maybe we've talked about flow before when you get into a, a zone of, of really, really exceptional performance. And sometimes it's by yourself, but I think oftentimes it is also in the presence of other people. Like you see when a team is really performing really well and they're in flow, it's, it's, uh, it just gets to a different level. Um, but those two things that you had brought up that I forgot about was the attention. You have to be totally engulfed and totally focused on what you're, what's in front of you. It's hard. You can't be distracted. And then you have to have some sort of enjoyment, at least for the situation or whatever you're doing. And this case would be, do I like the person I'm having a conversation with? If you don't like them, then probably aren't getting in sync. Yeah, I remember um, reading in a book like five, six pages of actual discourse analysis just to see how scholars diagram things and they note the overlap of interruption and they note time differences. And I remember, I remember 0.6 seconds was enough of a pause to indicate to the scholars something just went wrong there. Something was just off. Happened to be a bookseller in Greenwich Village is trying to lure a lady passing by into conversation, and he does it by kind of exploiting the rule, exploiting the rules. In other words, he forces her to be rude, and she walks away really uncomfortable by the fact that she was forced to ignore uh, the kinds of turns he was taking because he was just entangling her, right? Did, you, so did he ask a question like, <laughs> walk away if you hate me or something? You know, like something, something. Oh, he was, he was actually smart. When you clearly see that she's intending to go that way and then you say something like this, that would just, you know, force them into some cognitive dissonance right in that moment. Well, right. well you're asking her questions basically and she's done answering them. And so she's got to kind of stare straight, oh. straight ahead. And it's funny that the background was she moved to Greenwich Village because she wanted to be around more diversity. And when she gets there, she doesn't know how to, how to handle what confronts her. And, but he's being very, very smart. So it's, it's like, like I say, five, six pages looking at what he's doing. What he's doing is he knows the rules and he's using them to, like I say, entangle her. It's, but, but the point I was reaching for now was just the 0.6 second delay of her mm-hmm. answer tells you she's uncomfortable and they are... They are the opposite of in sync, right? Um, yeah. So anyway, fascinating. That's interesting. I think the it's kind of a nice hub right here. This Gol- Goldman kind of brings together a lot of the different theories that we've talked about. I mean, what the situation you just described was uh, an expectancy violation. That's how I would, I think, initially come to it. And then to realize that, I, I guess, Goldman is looking at the the neurological response to the these theories in action, which is kind of cool to see. Speaking of asynchronous communication, I definitely see that a lot. You see, I mean, we talk about social media, you could talk about emails, texts, just anything that isn't face-to-face. Maybe here's a bit of a curveball question is how do you think right now we're in, I think, a Google Hangouts meet. How close do you think we can get to synchronous communication through virtual means like this or like Skype or like Zoom? 
Do you think there's a lot of that has been bridged or do you think there's still some difficulties that arise where you can't really get into the zone? You can't get into the flow. You can't get in sync with the person you're talking to. Yeah, I think, um, I think Joe Walther has kind of taken his research this direction that, you know, he starts looking at just words when all you have is words. How does that affect things? Well, it takes longer to get to significance and you never get this uh, in sync thing happening. But I think Joe Walther, Walther would say that the technology is providing so much of the communication richness. I can see your face. Our listeners don't know, but we're actually face-to-face now as we're talking right now. And that getting the tone of your voice and getting, I don't know what the percentage is, we're not holding hands or anything. <laughs> we don't have touch. We don't have everything that can happen only face-to-face. I'm not smelling you, Bring John. us back to the first <laughs> podcast that we recorded. <laughs> we held, when we held hands, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, so I, all the richness isn't supplied by the technology, but an awful lot of it is. I think that's what's so amazing. I grew up watching the Jetsons you know, cartoon, and you saw people talking on screen, so it's like, whoa. The future, you know, but we are there. So I would think it would be completely possible. I, I think we're in sync now. And yeah, some level. I think, think uh, this is just most it's of, definitely most a blessing. Yeah, good question. Yeah, it's definitely a blessing minus the the little bit of a time delay where we interrupt each other every other sentence because we <laughs> right. are, are thinking someone's finished saying something and then we end up talking over each other for a brief moment. I think Sherry um, Turkle would have comments about there's something still going on cognitively in the background of our thoughts that whether it's just being prepared mentally for the fact that the tech might fail us any second. There's something that still can yeah. be inhibiting and not quite the home run of, of what happens face to face but um yeah great question i think i would i think i would err on the side that it's uh, a lot of the bridge has been gapped but it's also just how you use it i mean i for the purpose of the podcast have a, a number of screens on in front of me i have an open book i've got social intelligence uncracked open in for, or in front of me on the table um but i am fully engaged and I do enjoy what's happening. So I would think that a lot of that can be done and it's up to, you know, if those two things are are happening, then I think it's possible. I don't know to what degree it's a continuum versus you're there, you're not. Um, I too have screens open and I'm a little bit distracted by that. But uh, So maybe it is a continuum. It's, it's certainly not, what I'm experiencing right now is certainly not, you're talking, I'm trying to think of my, of my next turn and... And I'm not fighting cognitively for, you know, what's the next thing to utter. So yeah. maybe it is a continuum. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I think many times just the nature of who I am, I'm always trying to think of, I've got something queued up that's ready to go, but it's never, a, I think that's just part of a normal conversation. I don't think that would be different than if we were face-to-face either. And I don't I don't feel like we're fighting or, or getting... Um, out of sync in that way. I do know that one of the other slides or one of the things that we can look at is how when things aren't in sync or when conversations do become difficult to kind of look back and see, you know, what was going on that made this difficult. Cause sometimes it's not as clear where, um, you, you kind of take on the role of, of something that is, 
not ideal given the situation. For example, uh, interrupting, which are cases I think mostly here is unintentional just because of the delay and it's hard to um, time out how these things are. But when you look back on a conversation, I mean, if I was to be read a transcript or to be shown a transcript of my communications throughout any given day, any face-to-face communications, it would be interesting to see how many times I interrupted or how many times I told a story that was uh, too long or how many times I uh, started sharing too much given the context of the situation. And we've got a whole list of these difficulties in conversation that um, that can come up when you look back, you can see maybe this wasn't the, the best way forward. Well, I, I, I have a list of 14 and I, I tell my students we're all hard to talk to in some ways and sometimes. And so 14 qualities that I tend to think a little bit of mindfulness, you know, these aren't um, severe issues of, uh, I'm reaching for a word, not getting it, of dysfunction, let's say. But so one is the inactive responder. Like if you're in high school, maybe you make the other person work way too hard and can learn to balance turns with questions and observations and so on. But so there's 14 of them. And um, I always have my students ask your mom which one you should be working on. <laughs> ask your roommate. <laughs> ask your roommate which one you should be working on. Yeah. So the detour taker, this is about the topics. So we change the subject too much. And the long storyteller and so on and so on. There's a bunch of those. Uh, for my students, they kind of segue to three that are much more serious. Um, and we've already talked about anxiety. I don't know if that's been released yet. Probably not one of the released episodes. That one will that one will come come right after okay, this good. one. Okay, good. So social anxiety and the bigger, bigger catch-all of anxiety itself. We do talk about that quite a bit. The two other big bad things that can be challenging to deal with, challenging to deal with are narcissism. And argumentativeness. And so um, I can start on those if you like. So narcissism obviously is maybe not obvious. We we make ourselves the star of conversation, bring everything back to us, back to ourselves. And um, I think that's one you can kind of frame spiritually if I have not really learned the, the beauty and art and spiritual capability of becoming more interested in other people than I am with myself. That can be framed in repentance terms. Um, and what I f- tend to find is it's one of the qualities some freshmen in college bring in, in the door with them and some seniors leave without it. But in general, it's kind of one of the ways I mark the the growing maturity of students across colleges. They just tend to become much more other-centered. And it's something you can really appreciate. Um, asking questions of me, of my kids, and... Um, how my day is going and, you know, even mm-hmm. showing more interest in that. That's it. I always say to myself, Ooh, she's getting it. Oh, that's awesome. She's getting it. This, or even to say, pressure Paulson, you planned a test on Friday. I know what you're trying to do with that, but here's what's, here's how it's affecting me. Even that I'll say, that's good for you. That was an other centered person centered message. You talk in terms of my interests, not only in your own. And, and yeah, beautiful. You're getting it. You know, you just, have a an ounce of empathy where you can see what's happening outside of your own shoes. Exactly, perspective taking. Do you think this is a? Do you think this is a a continuum where you have? Because on one side you'd have something that's relating, 
which is appropriate in conversation to an extent, of course, where you, you can you share an experience or bring something to the table that is, I suppose, if you looked at it in isolation, centered around yourself. But then that that would be accompanied by other, you know, requests for, you know, what about you? Or like, have you ever thought about it this way? Or, or something that oh, would on, your, bring it back your to you. just um, froze. Bring it back to oh, them in some okay. way. Okay, sorry. Your image froze. Yeah, sorry, your voice I, cut out, but now you're Yeah. Back. We were forced out of sync for a second there <laughs> by Google. Yes, we were. That answers, um, our, answers our question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, um, I, do, but, I do think so. I think we've talked about transparency and there's power in revealing our stories and struggles and so on. But I, I always often say I need to be suspicious of myself and ask myself, why am I really mm-hmm. doing this? Because it can just be narcissistic. It can just be a certain under, underlying selfishness. So continuum, yeah, I think. So Paul's saying each of you should not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And so this is a clear mandate to make to try to emulate the attitude of Jesus in this exact way of setting mm-hmm. ourselves aside. It doesn't speak against using some of these skills very intentionally. I share my struggle for a reason, not just hopefully to bring the spotlight back to myself. But so yeah, that's a one of the three big issues is narcissism, um, an issue I can hope to grow in and not just fall in love with my own reflection in the water, like the the Greek legend has it. So uh, more on that one. Um, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't have any. For the story, the story, I've got. It's a weird question. Does it, do you have anything more else on narcissism <laughs> to, to, John? to bring to the table? <laughs> Surely I, you have something. I had to, to think about how to respond about. to that one for a second. I tell the story of being on the Alcan Highway, uh, driving to Alaska in college, and having that classic Christian college guy conversation about the beauty around you. And man, who can say God didn't make this and all of that? And then my one friend says, "You think these stars are great? <laughs> you should see the stars I saw." And my other friend says, really, even the stars in the sky remind you of you. So that's an example of one college guy kind of opening the blind of another saying, really? (laughs) Does everything make you think of you? So um, that's narcissism. Um, Yeah. Argumentativeness is an interesting one. I think it can challenge the conservative Christian that's going to have positions that we take that will be uncomfortable and controversial and so on. Does that mean that we are not faithful to Jesus if I didn't contradict you every single time I could if you're someone outside of Christ? Didn't tell you in every way I could that you're wrong. So I think argumentativeness is sort of needing needing the last word. It's sort of bringing an unnecessary dogmatism where it doesn't need to be there. It's uh, telling you you're wrong in every way I can think of in the moment. And it's another one that I think can make us difficult to talk to. And we may actually have this other layer of feeling I'm not being faithful to God or to Jesus if I don't tell you you're wrong in every possible way at every possible occasion. But so it's that last word issue. It's the argumentative edge that I might bring unnecessarily that may you know inhibit the flow yeah. of the kind of communication we were hoping to have, which is you know, honest, honest and open. And so Mm -hmm. there's that one. And I do think there's a, I do think there's a value in being able to 
immediately recognize the things that have gone against, especially if we're talking about faith, finding nuances in in things that people are saying or arguments that people are presenting that are contradictory to your faith and being able to recognize those is a, is a, I think a necessary skill, but then it's, is it appropriate to bring this up at this time? And what does that achieve when I do it? Because, I mean, if you look at it through speech act theory, every time something contradictory comes up, if you feel the need to express it and show it for every tiny detail, it, is implied in a certain way or people interpret that in a certain way. And maybe even if it's subconsciously the illocutionary action that takes place is I'm telling you that you're wrong. And then after a while or after enough of this, the perlocutionary action that takes place is, well, I just don't want to talk to you anymore. Or I am now interpreting you as a hostile communicator or uh, it's not enjoyable. I'm not liking this conversation anymore. I don't want to give my attention to it. And it's going to be hard to actually have a conversation that meaningfully moves forward in any yeah. any kind of way. That's a really good catch. So the the elocution is some doctrinal stand, let's say. the Or the locution is that the elocution is, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to establish my superiority, potentially. Or I'm trying to shut you up. I mean, there can be all kinds mm-hmm. of things that, again, make that a powerful question to ask. And so um, the classic kind of challenging example I often think about, though, one of our fathers 100 years ago, J.P. Kaler, wrote a famous essay in which he writes about how even defending doctrine can have these other things we're really trying to do. And and they can be fundamentally um, legalistic. And his example, really unforgettable, is he meets a Presbyterian woman and they have scintillating conversations and so they came to talk about the doctrine of election and the story is that she expressed in childlike confidence exactly what the scriptures say about the doctrine of election. Just a grace perspective of being chosen. Um, This is as high as grace ever gets when you were chosen by God before you'd done a thing in this world, you know. So she expressed that trust and confidence and but he says to her, but you can't have that view. You're a Calvinist. You're Presbyterian. You can't have that view. And he says she remembered how she learned it. <laughs> and he couldn't, from there, he couldn't judge, he couldn't budge her from the wrong position that he reminds her of. And he says, he says, I, to, to, to this day, I could give myself a crack on the mouth, is what he writes in this essay, because he diagnosis that his, his whole perspective was legalistic. It was intellectualism. It was a mind bound up in the law, he says. And what he's trying to do is just prove it wrong. That's what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's a challenging example, but I think it's a good one to think through. Um, do I argue, do I have conversations about things like doctrine that are really just an, another form of the, of the good news I'm eager to bring to you? That's mm-hmm. the reason for the conversation. If that isn't the reason, there's other illocutions, then we got to challenge ourselves on that. And the victory of love of Kierkegaard is I'm going to fight myself and the part of me that wants to do these things that are really not loving. I'm going to fight myself for you because I, I want it to be a good news conversation if, if God, can, yeah. God can grant that. So I think this is a pleasantly... Um, unintentionally becoming a great episode to queue up the next couple that we have because we do talk about um, 
negative apologetics, which is this idea um, that we go, I mean, we go into more depth of it there. But here, I think I've been many times in that place where it's not intentional or it's not conscious that I'm trying to, to win the argument, but that's what it essentially has become. It's just this feeling of like, I have to be right on this. I know that I'm right on this, right? I know that I'm right. Right. And then, and then maybe, maybe I get all the way to the end of the argument and, and at the end, great, I won the argument. Now what? And if the, if the intention, uh, was better acted out, maybe the, I think this is what we go, I have to go back and look and see exactly how we talk about the negative apologetics, but really the goal would be to like lead someone to the cross instead of being right in the argument, the goal is to lead someone to the cross. And so my, my, the words that I say take on a different, um, a different tone. Maybe I I don't even present the argument. Maybe I am not argumentative at all. Maybe I'm just exploring what the other person thinks and they lead themselves to the cross. Exactly. Any number of different things that can happen. But I mean, sometimes it gets to a place where I'll, you'll see it online, especially I think it, it's really prevalent where you have people who are almost like keyboard warriors. They're just going to going to fight the good fight online. And in everything that comes up that's wrong, we've got to point it out and we've got to show the inconsistency. And it just becomes this thing where, like, what does the dog do when he gets the bone? What does the greyhound do when he catches the, the little fur rabbit? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> what, it, what is actually... What what goes beyond that? And we and well, when we take a step back, the the goal being to bring someone to the cross, I think, is really something that, at least for myself, helps combat the natural argumentativeness that I bring to conversations, just by nature of being able to recognize when there's a disconnect between what's being said and what I believe. Right. You might not realize how small you're making somebody feel and how much unnecessary resistance you're conjuring up. So are the episodes on listening produced and published? Because everything yes. we tried to say in those, right? So it's not that I don't make an argument, or we've also talked about controversy. Not that I don't authentically advocate for the truth as I know it in Jesus, but it's advocating the right truth and making the right argument. And that's based on putting a lot more energy into listening and drawing out your story so that what I'm advocating is you know, God willing, what, what meets the moment and not the first thing you happen to say that I found something wrong with, you know? So yeah, this is, this is good stuff. Things do kind of swirl together here. We've talked about controversy and listening and so, um, yeah, I mentioned way at the start, the rules based approach to conversation, that's Grace's maxims. There's one about quality, which is, um, how honest I'm being, what are the rules there? Um, there's one about quantity, which is how long are our turns, relevancy we talked about. Um, and I, I guess one of the points is that all of these maxims apply differently to different cultures. So I was in uh, Thailand not that long ago, and there the relevancy maxim was entirely different. It was, if there's a topic put before a group, it's like bowling. We're all going to bowl. We're all going to take our turn and hit that topic. Whereas in our culture, it's more like tennis. So you play the, the ball where it's hit, right? So you respond to what's coming back at you. But it, the point here is that every culture has r- rules related to relevancy, rules related to topics. And so there's also some about, about um, 
sort of manner, the manner Maxim is being organized and, and understandable and how we structure things. Morality Maxim is, is are we truthful? Are we, are we obscene? That kind of thing. And the politeness Maxim is how we handle the various, the different face needs. So the need not to be ashamed, for example, how are we managing that in conversation? And so it's interesting. Um, you can't play chess if you don't know the rules. That's the idea. Um, I often think about when you are interviewing for a job is when you feel these unwritten rules, like, am I talking too much? You say to yourself. Am I making sense? You say to yourself. Um, it's the fact that we ask for, ask for permission to break them can be an indication that these are the rules. Kind of a long story. Sure, you want to hear it, we say. you know, Or this might hurt your feelings, but I feel like I should say it. So we ask permission to break them. And, and um, sometimes we break them on purpose, and you're supposed to know why I'm breaking them. So if you put me down for a job reference and I say things that are not relevant, like his socks always match or something, who knows what I'm saying. You're supposed mm -hmm. to realize that I'm breaking the rule on purpose because I must not have anything good to say, but I don't want to trash this person. And so um, I often say that there's approaches that can we can maybe come back to in a moment is how do we help those that struggle with conversation? We can say a few things about that. But for those that don't struggle, that find it all very easy, I think it's useful maybe to step back and look at the maxims and saying, even though it's easy for me, do I have good instincts about how, how as you said, how long my stories are or how I switch topics on someone or, or how I mm, am willing to gossip, let's say. And so Grice's maxims can also be very, very practical um, for making sure our conversations um, well, that they fit what we read from Colossians, you know, that there's a grace to them and so on. And that's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about was the idea of the, the context or, or cultural uh, implications of these maxims being different. So playing tennis versus playing chess versus bowling, or maybe all three, maybe it'd be fun to play all three as like a, a round table tournament. But those, I, I mean, that goes back to speech act theory. Uh, those are the rules in which we interpret, and then the cultures have slightly different rules, or the different contexts that we have are in, or that we find ourselves in, have different rules that are maybe unspoken, and maybe if we're if we're not careful, we find ourselves breaking some of those rules without asking for permission, or doing it in a way that would would hurt the conversation that we're trying to have. Yeah, it, it does go to when culture becomes really bewildering. It can be that this is a fruitful question. I remember being in a place in West Africa and um, the, the quality maxim was just different. So what counts as truthful it was just completely different. And the insight one of the missionaries gave me is it would be more shameful for a person. They'd experience more shame if you ask a question and they don't know the answer to it than for them to lie to you. So ask where the hospital is. They'll tell you. <laughs> they maybe don't know where it is, but they'll tell you. Down the next street and two blocks over, they'll tell you. Um, so it's a very different way of experiencing the cultural pressure to be, to be honest. And Yeah, what's more shameful is, well, if, so I, the, if I didn't the know, it would be more shameful. Yeah, so the Ill illocutionary act there, by asking a question, is actually more along the lines of, you know where the hospital is. And, and so... It, when you have that disconnect and they don't know that the, the incentive is for them to act as if they do know 
and then maybe provide false information versus um, being, I suppose, truthful about where the hospital actually is. I, I wonder if there's a way you're supposed to be, be able to detect that they really don't know and they're just covering face. And I'm not sure about mm-hmm. that, but it would seem pretty irresponsible to be, you know, for yeah, us yeah. to answer questions. You yeah. don't even know the answer. We answer anyway. But I wonder if there's a way, a, a dance that you're supposed to figure that out too. I don't, I don't know. It, I would imagine it's written in the rules somewhere. Or, I mean, we have little nuances of, you know, maybe being in the Midwest or maybe there's some for out towards California or New York. We all have different styles of communicating to one another. And then there are different ways that you'd pick those things up. I mean, from my perspective, I don't, I don't know how to empathize with that situation where someone values being perceived as knowing information more than they value being truthful, which doesn't say that's a disconnect for me, but that's also something that you know, maybe I need to step out of those shoes and recognize that the, you know, absolute truthfulness about this rather mundane thing is not as important as being able to, um, get, uh, let the person save face per se. Well, cultures aren't sacrosanct. I mean, you get to criticize, um, but part of that is implied is that we also have our blind spots too. And a person from another Mm -hmm. culture is going to see ours. Um, another example, just to, you know, make it real. Being, being in the Caribbean, um, the example was if you ask a class a question and let them discuss at tables, um, well, then every single table has to respond, even if you're hearing the same stuff over and over. And what often happens though, is it gets really heated and people are interrupting each other. It gets really super loud. Um, but again, it'd be more shameful not to be given your turn and be dismissed in that way than anything that can happen to you in the loud debate. So nothing can happen to you now that's going to be worse than if we neglected you, if we ignored you. And so you just kind of step back and say, boy, do they experience that differently? Because to me, if I'm in a yeah. heated argument, lots can happen that would hurt me more than just if I didn't get to speak. But uh, so you just kind of it opens if, your uh, eyes to this can be different. Yeah. It can be very different. I wonder culturally for sure it's a, I think maybe easier to come up with examples where you realize that, you know, I brought a bowling ball to the tennis court and was surprised when things didn't work out. But I, I bet there's other times when, when you're in a, a more, a slightly nuanced conversation, uh, or a slightly different cultural conversation where maybe someone, I guess, culturally, I think location. <laughs> so, right. If I'm from the Midwest, maybe I'm talking and, and uh, conversing with someone a little bit differently than I would if I was, you know, from Texas or from Florida or from California. Um, but maybe even the culture around uh, just Christianity itself, I'm a Christian. And so I have a, a, a certain element of that that I bring into a conversation, which maybe isn't perceived or understood from other people that I'm talking to and to recognize when the rules are different for the person that I'm talking to versus the rules that I'm expecting and to in the moment or even after the fact when you're analyzing what actually happened and what road you went down uh, to to see when that was maybe the cause of something that threw you off track. Yeah. I, I've been in a, in a position not long ago to need to defend what I've said and thought about transparency for example. And the, the, the new answer that occurred to me is 
just to ask a question, well, how, how transparent was the apostle? And it's prescriptive, not it's it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So we don't make a rule that you got to be like Paul. But the reality is he was incredibly transparent. So the quality of maxim is how honest to be. And there's Paul in Romans 7 saying, the good I want to do, I don't do. And just, what a wretch I am. And how he boasts about his weaknesses is incredibly transparent for someone who is the authority in the church, you know, in a position no one else quite had as Paul had. So his transparency about his emotion he kind of cuts himself open and just, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ and so on. So I think the Bible does, if it's okay to say it this way, it does set up a culture of its own. And I think we can't go wrong by noticing it. I think we could say all these maxims are on display in the scripture. Um, all mm-hmm. these maxims are commented on in scripture. Um, quick to listen, slow to speak. Well, that's the, uh, that's the quantity maxim, you know. Um, they're all there without any question. Yeah. I think myself, sometimes I get numbed to the how radical scripture actually is, you know, when Paul speaks so frankly about his his troubles, about the thorn in his side, about you know himself being a sinner. How many of us speak like that you know, in in our world? Just how open. different it is, and we wide we open. are we're. I feel like I'm kind of numb to sometimes just to you know this is scripture, and so you kind of like take off a certain set of clothes and then you put on a different set and then I'm reading scripture and then this is the world that I'm in. And then you, then you jump back in and that disconnect is just kind of, I'm numbed to moving frequently between both of those spaces. But then to realize that, you know, really I can, you know, maybe I ought to take some of this and apply it to the way that I'm actually interfacing with the world now, the way that I'm talking to other people and the way that I can be transparent, as you say. So much of this for me is, I've said twice now is enhancing the questions I have learned to ask. And so there's just another example of, well, how do the apostles speak? How do they? Not that it's again, a command, but it sure is informative. It's the least you could say. If you want to make a rule against being transparent, well, okay, how does that work? When I look at what I'm yeah. seeing in the apostles, you know. Well, along the same lines, what are some what are some other things that people can do to like if they're if they're looking back on their conversation and they're trying to figure out what are some things that I can do differently that might help elevate the way that I'm talking to people in general or about my faith. Yeah, I I do have some things I like to say to those that find this kind of difficult. Probably the first thing I'd say to my own quiet child, let's say, is to it's a gut check thing too, but it's to nurture a genuine interest in other people. I often say, quote unquote, pride, not really to pride, not to, you know, not to be more intrusive than a person would want you to be, but, but to become, to nurture a true fascination with other people. I think that's huge. I want to know their story and how they come to think the way they think and what they've been through in life that's made them who they are and how do they feel about this and what do they think about that? And that, uh, I think that challenge for all of us to, as I say, become more fascinated by others than we are inherently by ourselves. So that's number one. I think you go we go past, here's how I cope with my shyness or social anxiety. I, I leap past coping into potentially really thriving because, um, well, this is the life I've lived. This is kind of how I've dealt with my own personal challenges in communication is, is just go to that place of putting the focus on another person and 
nurturing that fascination. I think it's it's the first thing I would say to someone who finds all this stuff difficult. I have, th I have three more. That's probably the first. I know you can react to that if you care to. Well, yeah, I'm, I don't have too much other than just it, it doubles back on one of the things that we, I feel like we come back to every episode, which is just have a, a basic sense of empathy where you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and then um, be able to operate from that place. It's the, it's the antidote to the narcissism that we were talking about earlier. And so to, when you can bring that, it actually, it doesn't even, it doesn't just stop you from moving in that direction. It actually moves you in the opposite direction, which is what we, what we want to do, which is to, you know, to be open and candid and, and true. Yeah. Very good. Uh, second point I often make is who we, who struggle with conversation, who we choose to emulate and we may find ourselves looking, I could mention colleagues, I won't mention names, but looking at the most brilliant and the cleverest. And you just walk away saying, man, that guy's impressive. And, and if we have that, I think it's all very useful. But my, my counsel is to watch instead who are the graceful conversationalists, watch what they do. Um, I think in terms of the two different agendas I can bring, and one is to impress. I would like to impress you. I'd like to crack you up, make, make you laugh, have fascinating things to say, and you walk away saying, man, isn't that, isn't that guy something? But I, I often contrast this with a different agenda, and that is, let's say you walk away from conversation and you feel important, and you feel like you must matter because of the way someone just attended to you. Um, and it's a whole different thing to be after, um, but I think it's a powerful little flip to switch for those that say maybe I'll never be clever maybe I'll never be impressive in that first way but maybe the skills involved with helping somebody feel important and valued and listened to maybe those are a much more acquirable set of skills much more available to far more people um, and so that'd be a second thing who are you trying to emulate and think about people who are who bring grace in the, in the again in the Colossians 4 kind of way um, so that's my second point, I guess. You reacted to that, if you like. Maybe a question is, uh, do you have any conversationalists per se that you would recommend? Maybe that, maybe it's personal to each, everyone that would be listening, but I mean, there are some, are there, are there any people that, you know, that most people would know or that you could look up who would just be like, this is a really great example of how you can navigate this situation. I'm, I, my mind goes to, maybe strangely, but goes to some of the best interviewers that you see on television. Uh, I think of Tim Russert. He's, he's, he's gone now. But the skill of his questions and the kind of attention, the, the warmth of the attention... But his whole thing is to help another person open up, right? He's, that's what he's doing. He's, you know, um, he's exploring someone else's experiences and ideas. And I, I think some of the very best interviewers maybe are modeling things that can apply to all of us. Uh, I think, but then I also think of the micro skills you see, say I'm at the table in our cafeteria, and I notice the person across from me knows how to do the skill of conversation directing. So she's noticed that someone else is not taking part. And so she'll use her turn to direct the conversation to the person who's not taking part with something that they know they can answer. So you've been to Cameroon, what did you think? So they just have a, 
probably without thinking about it, just have a way of drawing people in um, and a way of not being the narcissist, you know. So that's what I think of. Um, I could name names. Maybe I won't do that. <laughs> but well, just, yeah, that's, that's helpful to just to know what to look for. When you, when you see other people doing something really well, when you see someone who's able to navigate the conversation and you're able to uh, look back and learn from that or to, you know, maybe engage in a meaningful way in that time. So what I love to say to, um, oh, let's say quiet future pastors, for example. So back to the, the JPK as JP Kaler essay, he actually has a thing where he expresses deep concern. This is a hundred years ago for a pastor who's too good at this stuff. He's too, he says, hail fellow, well met, backslapper, life of the party, can talk about anything to anybody. He, he fears that that's just another way of trying to add something to the gospel that just doesn't need. And so this is not him, but this is a picture I've kind of gained in my head is, let's say I were to go to the hospital, because you're in the hospital, and I go visit you in the hospital. And what I would aspire to is, could it be possible that as I walk in the door, it's as if the gospel itself has walked in the door. Why? Not because I can talk about anything to anybody, but I have one thing I talk about and I can talk about all day, let's say. I got one topic that lights my eyes up, and that is the gospel itself. And that I can imagine becoming associated with that message of all things. Um, I become connected in your mind to that. And so it's, it's a very different thing to aspire to than to have all the people skills in the world and I just kind of I just yeah. kind of like that I just like that again a little flipping of a switch of what what can a person hope to be especially if it's not in my natural set of talents to whatever be super extroverted and for sure and, and so smooth and yeah different way of thinking about that. that I think I've fallen into that sometimes where I uh, conflate someone being impressive as a conversationalist with them being um, caring or graceful and to like gravitate towards people who are really just, you know, saying a lot. They happen to be the one who's saying the most words, the loudest. And you kind of gravitate towards that when really the, um, there's value that can be found elsewhere. That's uh, worth being able to emulate as well. Yeah, again, things swirl together. So the narrative paradigm said all those words drain out of memory. A lot of them do as time goes on. What remains is the episode, and, and that is to say how how you felt. How did a person make you feel? And I think that's actually pretty useful in the long run, right, in the mm-hmm. long run. So, yeah, there are two more I don't have to spend a lot of time on. Um, I, those, what we said were the big things. Uh, negotiate toward eyes light up topic, which is to be curious about the particular secret to every person that, with whom you have something to do. So what is it they can talk about? What is it that they love talking about, whether it's books or their children or travel? And if you find them inherently interesting, then you can find interest in why macrame? And why is that a thing that, yeah. you, that you get passionate about? So I don't love macrame, but I, God willing, love you enough to you know, be willing to talk about that with you. So is it movies? Yeah. What is it that is your thing? And once we find that, we don't we don't want to squander that. But yeah, I think, I mean, even going back to the beginning, 
when you ask questions of people in a conversation, most people aren't going to say like, ah, oh, you know, I don't like talking about myself <laughs> or I don't like talking about this thing that I'm passionate about. Most people are actually very open about this. And it's not, not to say you're playing off of narcissism per se, but that there is a, you know, a sense of self that you can appeal to when you're having a conversation that you need to, when you're having a conversation. And it, I mean, it's a two way street, but it is a, a great way to keep the conversation moving forward in a, in a pleasant way that, helps you stay in sync that helps you move it forward yeah totally i think you're just treating a person as if they matter Mm -hmm. really i don't think you have to think of it as feeding narcissism i think people have things they need to talk about and they need that human connection they need to connect over something and so i'm willing to let it be whatever it is for you yeah you know yeah i've never i've I actually might think about this now as I'm going into the, uh, when I have a, a little something prepared or a, a question where I'm asking someone one of these and <laughs> how funny would it be if someone were just like, yeah, you know, I don't like talking about myself. <laughs> I've never encountered it. So it would be, it would be something funny, but. The last one is something I learned from an Ann Landers advice column when I was a little kid <laughs> and she talked about two kinds of tennis balls one is and this is in the books now this is in the research so a quality turn means a turn i take that's interesting it's quality it's because i'm invested in arts and politics and sports and books i can talk about lots of things maybe have a great sense of humor all that's useful if we have that good use it it's great but but the point is there's another kind of tennis ball it's called free information and if you listen to people talk to each other, they're not always that interesting. Uh, you say you work at Walmart. Oh, my brother works at Walmart. And so that's not interesting, but it still is at least taking a turn. And so the the picture of the metaphor is if I'm not great at this stuff, I maybe have two or three tennis balls in my possession. Mm-hmm. And if you say to me, so Mark, how are you doing? I say, fine. Well, I just, I, you just, I just kept your tennis ball, right? I didn't give yeah. anything back. What you doing today? Mm-hmm. I say, oh, not much. Well, that's the second tennis ball you threw to me and I just kept it. And so it's telling students if they're the inactive responder, we can share the work more than that. And we can do it with quality questions. We can do it with free information. And uh, I think people that struggle, struggle can often be thinking everything has to be quality. Everything has to be scintillating and clever. And yeah. No, no, no. Just I can be part of the conversation. I can throw things back that I'm pretty sure you can handle and respond to. And so this is just part of basic communication competence is basic the basic ability to make people comfortable with me is to just share the work so i'm going to share opinions they're not that they're all fascinating i'm going to share information i'm going to ask questions and um so that's the one that really for the for the high school profile like i say someone that just mm-hmm. doesn't do any of the work well yeah we can push through that is the idea of the fourth um yeah. Little pieces of homespun, homespun wisdom, which are be interested, um, watch graceful people, not just clever people. Um, think about the eyes light up topic concept that people have things they can talk about. And the last one is I do, I do have to have my oar in the water and I can grow in that ability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I need to, I, I need to practice. I've been rather not isolated, maybe a little bit isolated, but this last couple couple months, I think, 
to to actually have a conversation and to to be able to put these things to use. I'm actually excited now. I kind of want to go go to a coffee shop and strike up a conversation. Sometimes I try to do it on the airplane, and sometimes you uh, just the other person is not interested in having a conversation at the time, <laughs> right. and that's and that's fine. I've gotten better at recognizing that earlier um, over time, but. Yeah, yeah I, I like all of these. And I think these are a great way to queue up the next couple episodes that we have as well, um, where we talk about the 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 conflict, the difficult conversations, the um, anxiety, the interpersonal communication, and I think negative apologetics as well. I think we touched on pretty much all of those. So this will be this will be great to kind of lead into all of those things. Any last things about this that we wanted to. I mean, there's so put much. on the table. I, yeah, I see a couple things we've talked about. I don't see us needing to get into them. I have a new lab in my class, a new conversation lab, and that that just kind of brings in that there are dozens of kinds of conversation. Mm-hmm. So I have students role playing all kinds of stuff, like making requests of someone in authority, conversation repair when something's gone wrong, how to how to um, persuade someone to help you out in a situation. So there's tons mm-hmm. and tons of particulars here but i think i think the big picture stuff is probably pretty good for now in my opinion yeah well it was great to to get back at the microphone i'm really happy that we're able to do it um virtually with its uh with its hiccups here and there um and then we've got a couple more coming out and as we've done in the past we will each finish up with a little dessert a little tidbit of something interesting, maybe not related to the topic at all, or maybe just something fun that happened or a story or something that's engaging that, that we can finish off with. And then we'll, we'll awkwardly sit in silence and <laughs> I forgot about that and somehow end the episode. <laughs> oh, well, mine is just uh, surreal moments in Albania. I did a kind of impromptu trip to Albania to uh, speak at a European conference. Um, people from all over Europe is fascinating. But I didn't sleep for 40 hours before the first day. Long story oh, no. short. And they lost my luggage. And and I had to hurry up and sleep. And I wasn't feeling it. So I took some cold medicine someone gave me. And wasn't feeling that. So I took a little more. And now I'm hallucinating crazy auditory <laughs> visual hallucinations getting darker and darker. And I'm going to get get up and at them in about two hours. And try to figure out how to talk to Europeans. <laughs> oh so this word. this surreal moment of lying in my bed in Albania, at, literally nothing in the room works, not a single thing, not the locks on the door, not the TV, not the not the shower, nothing. And on my shelf is some clothes from an Albanian man's father I just met. <laughs> not, <laughs> not what I would wear. <laughs> Meanwhile, in some carousel in Las Vegas, my luggage is going around and around. Oh no. <laughs> Because the, the barcode got smudged. So my luggage just traveled America, San Francisco, Las Vegas. <laughs> and, I'm, and my hallucinations are darker and darker. I just had to squeeze my eyes shut. If I open my eyes, I'm seeing horrifying things <laughs> moving oh, over my bed. Word. And I, I practiced speaking to see how it's going to go in three hours. And I couldn't articulate. My knees were wobbly. And, oh, my. I can't believe it went as well as it did the first day. Second day, I got a little sleep. Second day was just beautiful. I had a wonderful, wonderful trip meeting amazing people. And But uh, I don't know what the moral is. God gets you through stuff because that was 
such an ordeal. And really, when I got up to speak, anything could have happened to me. <laughs> ladies, There's ladies, something next... about that scene is just... Oh, man. <laughs> the way you said nothing in the room works. <laughs> My baggage is going around merrily in a carousel at the MGM Grand. And, and the band uh, is playing outside my window, this heavy bass. You can just thump, thump, thump. <laughs> the clothes of some Albanian man's father I just met sitting on. It's like a short story award of the year. Oh, I love yeah. It. It's great. So anyway, had a, it's been a very adventurous summer that was... Uh, Probably the most adventurous moment. So, what's your uh, what's your random dessert, John? Well, I had one, and then I I changed it in the middle of the episode. I realized that the last uh, couple weeks have been the World Track and Field Championships held in Eugene, Oregon. So it's been really fun to watch those. I do miss running. I miss track. I still run here, just like a five k a day. Get it done. Get my calories in. But watching people perform at a really, really high level. And just even knowing a little bit of the backstory is enough. It's like almost brings me to tears sometimes just seeing someone exert themselves and just pour everything they have into that kind of performance is, uh, maybe I'm in a small group of people that are are like this, but for me, it's, it's been really interesting. There've been quite a few world records actually that got broken. I think there's, um, the the one that sticks out to me is the 400 meter hurdles the women's record the last 2 years has just been getting broken almost every every big meet it just gets broken again i think there's uh uh i'm going to forget her name and i'm going to hate myself for it i think dahlia muhammad is one and then uh sydney mclaughlin uh so sydney's the kind of up and coming 22 year old who's been breaking the record every time she won the gold medal, broke it there. I just, she ran a race and broke the record in a way that I thought was like, I don't think anyone had seen it coming. It's just utter dominance of the sport so far, which was really, really impressive to see. I think, I don't know if it'll be, I, I, I really don't have words to put into context if you haven't done track and field, but the history of the world record is that basically low 52 seconds was the like elite runners and no one had broken 52 until I think a year and a half ago. And, and then these two had kind of come up and were running in the 51s and it was insane. And we were getting down like slowly 51, six, 51, four. And then, the race she ran, she ran a 50.6. So it's like for a race that's so short to go that much faster than anyone else in the world, no one else in the world has ever run under 51. Only one other person throughout history has run under 52. And that person was just last year. So it's just. And, and to, it's such a thing of beauty. It's just. The, phys- oh the, phys- the physicality is so if, smooth. If you, there's some, I think it's online. You can go watch it on, on YouTube, but just if you want something interesting to watch, maybe outside of what you usually watch on YouTube, but I, it's something that I thought was really, really incredible just to see someone race this and to be amongst the most elite runners in the world who are all running times that are top 10 times in the world. And just to be that much farther ahead of them was just, it's uh, it is something else. 
That brings to mind my favorite moment as a coach. Mm-hmm. I actually have a single favorite. Um, so I'm standing beside an athlete from the past who's not helping coach, and his dreams never really materialized for running. And it was really heartbreaking. But then his young brother comes on the team and and uh, just, you know, really full of talent too, same kind of raw talent. And um, so we're standing on the track, and his younger brother with my star runner are doing 400 repeats. And my favorite workout. So smooth. It's just such, I don't know what the words are, just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so... So here's the big brothers watching little brother train with this star. And when they got exactly across the track, then his younger brother disappeared behind the star runner. He just disappeared. They were just running so stride for stride in such mm-hmm. sync. Here's our word again. In such sync. It was, and I just heard, heard the athlete beside me just, just, I don't know, just, wow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Just stunned in awe of how beautiful it was, and I just mm-hmm. thought that was other centered. His own career was so difficult, but watching his brother. Yeah. So anyway, it's hard to. The sun's going down. It's at the track in New Orleans, and it's mm-hmm. just yeah. everything about the memory is just so beautiful. So I get it. Watching people perform. Yeah. People often ask me, they're like, "Do you do you get runners high? Do you like love running? Or you do five k every day?" And I'm I think every time. <laughs> When I'm actually running, I'm like, I hate this. This sucks. <laughs> this is terrible. I can't. But the feel, I think for me, it's the feeling afterwards when you can push yourself and you can actually, um, like, you achieve, you, you have a target time. I mean, mine's not too fast. I mean, I think I barely under 20 minutes for the 5K here at altitude. Um, but to, like, when you hit that, when you finish the race, that's when the, that's when the fun hits for me. And then to see people at the, the highest level able to do that something else entirely very good john great memories yeah well maybe we'll maybe i'll bring a, a cross-country memory for dessert next time oh we, i will I think too. we've had a few of those. Got more of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's such I, a I have a few in the under up my sleeve <laughs> oh, I, do, I do too as you know all right well <laughs> this is where we awkwardly end um <laughs> thanks for listening uh for those that have been wanting it, we've got a couple more episodes in the works um, and hopefully can even get a few more in before the school year starts. So, so. Very good. Cool. So. <laughs>